If you've been noticing a lot more disputes between restaurant franchisors and their franchisees lately, you're not wrong. Hello, this is Jonathan Mays, the executive editor with Restaurant Business Magazine, and this week's podcast, A Deeper Dive, explores the reasons for these disputes, why they happen, and what brands have done to repair relationships and fix cultures. We have two interviews with franchising experts. I talk with first with John Gordon, a restaurant consultant out of San Diego and an authority on many of these topics. We talk about some of the disputes involving companies such as Tim Hortons, Applebee's, Subway, and Quiznos. And we talk about the business's victories and how they've succeeded at improving franchisee relationships. And later in the podcast, I speak with Chad Finkelstein, an attorney out of Toronto who covers all areas of business law, including franchising, in Canada. He gives us his perspective on the Canadian dispute between Tim Hortons and some of its franchisees there. And lastly, I take some listener questions again. But first, here's John Gordon. John, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's uh, delightful to be here. So, uh, John, we seem to be seeing a lot more franchisee disputes. Uh, we've got Tim Hortons, Subway, uh, Applebee's franchisee currently in bankruptcy and, and in a dispute with the brand in a very interesting situation, uh, Dickies. Um, do you think this is random or is something bigger going on? So uh, these are very complicated situations, as you know. Mm-hmm. Um, it is uh, things take a while to uh, boil up. Uh, mm-hmm. Ultimately, I think that all of these kind of disputes revolves around, you know, four or five different topics. But mm-hmm. interpersonal and cultural issues are, are right. a very, very big one. And then, you know, general stewardship and, and direction of the, of the brand is another very big one. And those, those then tend to be the catalyst, if you will, and then a whole a whole series of other technical issues, you know, come up. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I thought about this a little bit, and I jotted down. There, there's a whole host of different issues involved uh, with, with franchise uh, franchise disputes. Um, and, uh, you know, in, in my view, uh, you know, one element is marketing and promotions and, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the franchisor, particularly if they're publicly traded, you know, they're very vitally interested in same-store sales points and bragging rights thereof. B, if the if the brand happens to have a captive supply chain, uh, that becomes a very, very volatile area. Uh, you know, as you know, this business is, a, is still said to be a, a business of pennies. Mm-hmm. And franchisees are extremely cost-conscious for all kinds of different reasons. And, you know, um, if if there is a situation where, a royalty is being paid, and then there is a super market markup, if you will, on the supply chain products, then mm-hmm. that, that, that tends to be extremely explosive. There's all kinds of issues regarding ad funds, uh, management thereof. And then there's, there's issues, you know, just on a technical sense about expansion and who's expanding and when and, you know, yeah. what, what, what's all that strategy. So th- those are the four technical points, I think. Right. So I think it would be interesting to kind of take some of these a little bit one-on-one, um, with, like marketing and promotions. And I think that we had a big situation uh, late last year with a chain you might have heard of called Subway uh, when the brand said that they were going to start sort of – people were saying, oh, they're bringing the $5 footlong back, which is sort of what they did, uh, although they called it four ninety nine and it was a limited number. And franchisees just really protested. Um, they, they did, and uh, so I mean, is that is that? Do you see when when you have situations like that? Is that kind of an example of you know that push pull between a franchisor that uh, really needs to generate more revenue and get more customers in the door because they you know they rely on that royalty stream, and then the franchisee who relies on profit. Is that is that why you see this sort of these, these situations? Yeah, uh, y- yes, I do. Um, uh, you know, there, there is some additional color, as I understand it, mm-hmm. from talking to a lot of different subway folks over a period of time is, you know, first of all, that, um, of course, subway, DAI itself, owns no company stores, mm-hmm. zero, not one. So, you know, it, sure, uh, $5 foot long was acknowledged by everyone to have been a great uh, product feature in 2007, 2008, you know, coming out, uh, coming through and out of the Great Recession, but Subway Subway never really evolved from that. 
and they yeah. they reverted to this price point, low price point marketing, literally because uh, they had they had nothing else to do. They they in terms of general marketing themes, they just had so little going on that that was that was the only um, uh, that was the only tactic that that the marketing staff and advertising agency saw as a way forward. They also had some expansion issues, didn't they? They did. Uh, so, um, you know, dur- dur- during this period of time, of course, we can we can track how uh, Subway in the United States and, and Subway worldwide um, has grown in in, tr- in terms of unit in terms of units and the like. But um, we, um, we we have to recognize that um, the work. Um, of an in, internal machinations in, in the subway system, the uh, advertising, uh, the uh, area developers uh, called DAs in, in their mm-hmm. in their speak were incentivized to grow units because Mr. Um, um, Fred DeLuca, Mr. DeLuca, um, at some point decided to reduce the amount of. <clears throat> royalty sharing that the uh, that the area developers received sometime mm-hmm. in 2008-2009 and that that resulted in a lot of of new new unit growth that that subway didn't say no to there there was a uh, extreme amount of new unit growth um stores following behind other stores corner corner after corner right. and that made it more difficult to be able to to actually you know uh, generate additional customers that, that would have paid for for the discounting actually going on because right. any time you discount there's a and this is a analysis that should be done there's an implicit break even point in terms of additional customers and sales that need to be generated to offset the the product discounting underway and the franchisees just felt that that subway didn't have anything else and 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 that it it, it eroded the brand right. So let's let's uh, you know, I guess move on a little bit to what you call one of the more explosive topics, um, and and that's the captive, um, uh, you know, the, the captive purchasing requirements. And we we've, we've seen uh, some of the it, that, you know that particular topic, um, sort of the, the at the heart of maybe some of the more significant disputes we've ever seen I think in the in the franchise business where um, you know the franchisor is making money off the you know is 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 taking a, a you know is marking up the food and then um, you know not really doing enough to share that with franchisees exactly and and John so supply chains in the 70s and 80s were much more common in terms of captive supply chains but you know the big brands, Yum and McDonald's, never got into you know captive supply chain uh, work really at all. Mm-hmm. But there were large, these large non-profit uh, co-ops that were that were set up separate and apart from the company, in which if there was any profit, then it was reinvested in rolling stock or distribution centers, or actually you know many franchisees actually get a dividend back if their supply chain entity makes a profit above its own requirements. But there, there were a, there were still some some franchise entities that, that held on to the captive supply chain route. And if you if you think about it uh, right now, you know if we look at the really hot issues underway right now by brand, supply chain is an essential part of the 7-Eleven situation that's underway. Uh, supply chain issues, um, you know, are heart of the Tim Hortons uh, matters underway. They, they are a part of the Dickies uh, situation that's underway, as, as we're as we're as we're finding. And in terms of the granddaddy of all problems, the Quiznos situation, you know, it, it really was ultimately all about, you know, the supply chain markups and how it made the stores uneconomical to work. Right, and 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 in the and in the, in the Quiznos situation, um, you know, that's that was. Arguably the most egregious situation I think that we've ever seen, um, where uh, these con- consistent markups, uh, and then a brand that that made low unit volumes, and uh, 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 and then a recession happened at the same time, 
and it led to a complete, you know, a, a virtual collapse of the system, really, that we've never, ever seen before. Right. Um, and that, that was, and then, of course, there were significant amount of disputes in, in that situation. Yeah, yes, there were. Um, yeah, the, the, at one point, the Quiznos financial entity generated over 60% of its EBITDA uh, from its captive supply chain entity. And that was at its peak in 2007, actually. And, of course, it, it, it continued to go through years and years of declines and units closing and, and disputes. And I don't think that Quiznos unhooked its supply chain entity. I think Gene Baldwin helped out you know, with that mm-hmm. effort in 2015. So it yeah. took them that long, that extremely long period of time to get that unhooked. But the problem was, by that point, they had lost so many stores and they've disappointed so many customers. You know, when you, when you have thousands of units that close, that sends a very, very ominous uh, sign out to the marketplace. Right. So what's happening in those situations, just to make sure that we you get that straight, is that they is that the franchisor controls the supply chain and then will, uh, you know, will theoretically buy the food, uh, buy the paper and other products. And at, at one price, and then charge franchisees another price, um, or it also aren't they uh, sort of collecting rebates and uh, from 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 soda companies and stuff like that? That's kind of how that works. Yeah, exactly, uh, John. So the the rebates are uh, are straightforward. Uh, they have been collected for years. Uh, it's uh, many times, uh, you know, the the, the typical franchisor standard operating process is that the, the the rebates would be disclosed on the in the franchise disclosure document and the rebates might be used for the annual convention or for for, for other things like that but but where there's an actual separate sourcing fee that's separate and apart that that uh, that is uh, that is implicitly uh, built into the pricing structure that either the franchisor buys the product or most typically, where the master distributor actually buys the product and then per instructions of the franchisor actually lays in an additional sourcing fee as it's most commonly called. Mm-hmm. And that's 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 the difficult part because um you know that that is a um for for a business that is is very price competitive as we are as our industry really is you know the the, the pennies begin to build up over a period of time. Mm-hmm. You know, in my long restaurant career, my long restaurant analytical career, cost of goods sold control is 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 uh, you know percentage control is, and you know tr- trying to hit what what we all believe that it should be is just routine. And mm-hmm. but what that causes is if you're invariably trying to drive in a sub shop, let's say, if you're trying to drive your cost of goods sold down to say 29 percent. And yet your run, your real run rate is maybe 35, 36 percent. Right. Well, it's, it's always done through through gimmicks of either portion size decreases or it's done through uh, through increasing pricing, and that mm-hmm. that has the effect of just pricing you out of the market. Right. I think in in, in like in the Quizno situation, um, which I think is sort of a textbook example of of, of kind of what not to do. They had. Um, you know, you're, you're a franchisee and you're making low volumes, uh, as it is. Um, you know, and then you pay a percentage off the top to the franchisor, right? And then, um, you know, and, you know, and that might be seven, eight, you know, anywhere from four, five, six to seven, eight percent, depending on the system. So you, you know, you might pay, you know, eight percent royalty and, and ad fund. And then, um, you know, and then you had like, 35 to 40 percent uh, of labor of of of, of, of food costs, and then you you know you had and then you had to make a profit off of off of what was left. Plus, you also had um, heavy discounting going on at one point uh, in that situation, which which brings to the earlier point is when you have these brands that are trying to generate sales, they often discount the heck out of things uh, and and short throw out a lot of coupons and that sort of thing. And um, and so franchisees are the ones that have to honor those discounts, and um, you know, and it, it just really you could just see if you you do the math a little bit, um, it, it 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 can make it very very difficult to to generate a profit, and you know, and I think one of the things 
uh, that could become an issue down the line in a lot of these franchise systems is is uh, is delivery, and um, where you know the franchisees are the ones who end up paying the delivery fee, and uh, and it, that'll end up being another cost as more consumers end up shifting more of their sales and visits over to delivery from you know from from in-store visits. Franchisees are the ones that are going to have to pay for that price. Well, that's exactly right. I I wrote a paper. Uh, at some point uh, about a year or so ago, trying to quantify what is the real variable profit for a mm-hmm. franchise, a, a, a QSR franchise delivery uh, transaction. And, yeah, it's true. You really need to jump the average ticket higher, you know, two times higher, three times higher, in, in order to come anywhere close. But, you know, for example, I would say, you know, we, we need to give uh, Yum! Brands and Pizza Hut creds for actually mm-hmm. making an investment in their third-party delivery agent in, uh, I think it was $200 million, which is no chicken change, you know, that's real money, but to actually buy down the ra- or, or to ensure that the rate that its franchisees paid is less so that the franchisees <laughs> would be comfortable with it, you know, and the like. Uh, but that's, that's, that's exactly right. You pointed out the difference between gross sales and net sales, you know, in, in terms of part of the discounting. Well, there's, there's right. always some discounting that has to happen in sure. businesses. You know, there's there's just no doubt about it. But if you start to add up, you know, a a royalty, a marketing fee, um, a difference between gross sales and net sales, and then if you have a captive supply chain markup difference, then and, and, and then of course, you know, we all know that the store has to be able to service its debt, right? You sure. You're able to pour money in from from friends and friends or family or bank debt, you know, but still that debt has to be serviced. It has to be offset over a period of time. And then you've got to remodel the stores. So, at, you know, at some point, you know, it, it, it's very quickly can be seen for some of the for some of the weaker brands that have these characteristics underway. It's it's really hard to make it, you know. It's just mm-hmm. the math just doesn't work. Right. So one one of the issues that we, we tend to, that tends to come up, I think, in, 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 in a lot of these situations is this idea of uh, – you know, restaurant brand companies don't operate as many of their own stores anymore. It's a real common situation. I mean, I think if we look at 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 a lot of these situations we're bringing up, uh, Subway, uh, Dickies, um, Quiznos, uh, Tim Hortons, very very little company operated restaurants in those situations, and you get um, uh, concerns from uh, you know you get some concerns. Uh, you know, from people that, you know, these brands don't necessarily know what it's like to operate restaurants. Do you think, do you think that plays a role, I think, in some of these situations? Uh, very, very much so. Um, over the weekend, I had a chance to look at Nigel Travis's brand new book that's out. And there, mm-hmm. there actually is a quote in there. Um, uh, th- this is Nigel's book relative to the, uh, I think he calls it the, the, the discussion culture, you know, if you will, the, right. the the, uh, the I don't think he means confrontation cycle, but he's getting at that people communicate back and forth. But at some point when he uh, when Nigel was coming on uh, on board in 2008 into Duncan Brands, they talked about the fact that they didn't have any company stores at the time, and Nigel acknowledged that you know because of that there were there were just certain aspects of operations that the franchisor just didn't know, and of course right. in his way he tried to fix that, and he was. You know, he was much more actively involved in operations than than many other franchisors. But you know, if if, if you don't have some skin in the game, and we, mm-hmm. you know, this, this phrase keeps getting repeated, you know, through the decades. But if you don't have some visibility or take care of of some customer, you know, uh, at some point, you know, I I just don't see how that your concept and product development can be really geared properly because you just mm-hmm. don't know. What's going on in the stores? Yes, you can you can do a lot of testing with franchisees. Yes, there are franchisees that that, that want to do it. And yeah, for the for the brands that don't have many company stores, I think they can make much better use of their franchisees, and they can make very good use of the franchisee associations too, because the association isn't there just to fight. Okay, the association is there to to share information and, and expertise, and the um, the the real where the rubber really meets the road in terms of not having enough company stores 
shows up in a situation as as exemplarized by by Subway and the fact that they were, you know, just kind of frozen in place for so long. You know, they <laughs> they, they live the corporate life, you know, cashing royalty checks and the like and, and store development, but there's there's more to being a, a good steward of the brand. Right. Oh yeah. Um definitely uh is the case. So um so let's let's talk a little bit about about culture because you mentioned that and I think that tends to be an overlooked element here. I think it was definitely an issue. It's definitely an issue in what's going on at, at Tim Hortons in Canada at least. Definitely, where you have a, a certain culture clash. And I think that's a lot of it because I think Tim fundamentally Tim Hortons still performs pretty well up in Canada and there's still pretty heavy demand for franchisees. It's a well loved uh, brand up in Canada. In fact, a lot of their issues have something to do with the fact that, you know, people in Canada just kind of don't like what they see with what's going on and and and, and have been uh, concerned about it. But it's still, you know, you can do a number of things if your brand performs very, very well. Like McDonald's, for instance, charges enormous rates for real estate. It does. And, uh, and it can do that because, A, it has extremely good real estate, and, B, it does $2.5 million per restaurant. And right. Whereas Quiznos did what? Uh, you know, I don't even know where it's but I think they peaked at about 450, and when they started to really decline in 2011, uh, they 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 had fallen to about 380, 350, you know, right. AUV, and that, you know that that level is just so low. You can't cover your rent. You no. can't cover management. It's just there's there's no there's no leverage on any kind of expense, you know, at that yeah. level. So how much how much does culture matter in, in in a lot of these situations where 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 you know there's a certain culture in a franchise brand and then maybe somebody else steps in and tries to change all of that? Well, sure, it, it's very important. I mean, I I think first of all, and I've, I've begun to see this, you know, over over my you know several decades in this business is fundamentally we need to remember that this business is a people business. There. Are, there are real life human beings everywhere, and in order to get the optimal performance, the optimal everything, things have to work on a human to human basis. And right. unfortunately, I, I could see that the there was a cultural mismatch uh, in Canada. Tim Hortons, and you've you've heard me say this, I mean, uh, before, is that Tim Hortons is kind of regarded as the national treasure. You know, it, it was it was beloved right. in Canada, and um, there was just so much. Turnover after the point that um, that restaurant brands Inc came in, it 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 it, it lost some of its it, it, it lost some of its culture and it, and it lost some of its appeal. You know, you you had you had people essentially that were parachuted parachuted in in, in order to run this brand, and that you know particularly if you have. 100% franchise brand as as they do <laughs> then mm-hmm. you know if you're if you're not getting along with your franchisees uh you know it, it's it's a terrible thing i i think we all know Cheryl Batchelder one of her famous uh sayings was you know you 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 can't be a franchise uh leader and be at, be at war with your franchisees if you're right. a franchisor and that 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 very much you know is seen so i always pin this back to the human the human side first in order to in order to detect what what mm-hmm. kinds of things and it's unfortunate that there's so much corporate disruption when there's big m and a you know and right. I, I I just think that that there can be big m and a that's clearly the world that we're in, but I yeah. think you can be smart about it and that you can have a more measured approach you know in terms of how you how you transition into things and and keeping a uh, keeping brand stewards left that have some memory of the culture and what what we need to do to make it work in this particular environment. Right, right. Um, and, you know, you, you mentioned Cheryl Batchelder, and I think it's a good time to talk about I mean, maybe some of the, uh, the victories here. Uh, you know, there are – we've seen a number of situations over the years, I think, where, where you've had uh, cultures that have been fixed, and I think that, that Cheryl's – uh, the job she did at Popeyes was was probably as good as anybody else that we've ever seen, because uh, that brand was kind of a mess when she took it over, and um, and it really kind of revitalized around franchisee faith and 
uh, what Cheryl was doing. And she had a very, you know, franchisee centric kind of model. Um, and you kind of see that. I think that one of the good things that 3G did, 3G did when they took over Burger King back in 2010, which was they kind of fixed the disputes that were kind of ravaging the Burger King system, right. which were very, very ugly. Yes. Um, yeah. And I mean, you see all sorts of these revitalizations. I think Domino's revitalization was done at least in part because that brand became more franchisee focused and technology focused, but they, you know, uh, Patrick Doyle was very good at making sure, you know, that these, this brand was helping operators generate cash flow. So that's another, I mean, you have so many examples of franchise brands that kind of get it and they don't have to operate company stores. They just have to make sure that their franchisees can make money. Cause if you're going to be, if your franchisees make money, you're going to do a lot better as a franchise system. Right, and, and yeah, exactly, and and I, I agree very much. Um, you know, one brand that uh, I've been just fascinated with, and I've I've talked to the the uh, uh, the CEO who's now the the uh, senior chair, uh, and that's of course Mike O'Donnell of Ruth Chris. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very interesting to note that they have fifty percent, approximately fifty percent of their units are franchisee owned and operated, and I've talked to Michael and. In analyst calls, in uh, you know, on the on the side, uh, in, in many different Q and A settings, and that is a not that they're perfect, you know, as Michael would be very mm-hmm. quick to point out, is that you know they're the heart and soul of the brand, but not that we don't have some disputes from time to time, but you don't you don't see litigation, you don't see franchisees, uh, you know, going belly up, uh, you you see you see swim lanes pretty nicely established. In other words, that uh, that Ruth Chris operates in certain markets, and then the franchisees operate in certain markets, mm-hmm. and, and that was pretty brilliant, actually. And now they're they're combining that, you know, in terms of what they're doing internationally, that they have master franchisee joint ventures, you know, in right. in, in some of the other cities. But but you know, it, you don't have to have problems. You know, Andy no. Buzzer, I think we have to give him credit for actually putting uh, franchisees uh, on his board of directors. You know, yeah, and. and and um, you know it, uh, he and I was just with Andy in, in July, and he, he you know he repeated again how he how he felt that that was absolutely the the, the smartest one of the smartest things that he ever did. Not that there weren't mm-hmm. some issues from time to time, but at least that that viewpoint could be there. And he's right. He's an advocate of that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. That was uh, and. Um, when he did that, I don't think anybody did that. I, still, almost nobody does it today. Right. Uh, it's fairly rare, but yeah, you, you definitely got to give him some credit for for putting a pair of operators on 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 the board. And you know, it, it makes you know, it's it's it it makes all sorts of sense. I mean, franchisees are a huge huge investor in your brand. They're the ones uh that are are um you know they're on the ground operating your stores and they're the ones that are dealing with customers they're the ones that are employing the people who represent your brand they're the ones that are are borrowing the money to uh, open stores or they're uh you know attracting equity to uh to 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 finance their expansion or you know they're putting so much money and and time and effort behind your brand you know they really, really do deserve a say um, in, you know, or certainly they should be listened to, um, uh, you know, and and their views, uh, you know, be considered. Um, and then just fundamentally, gosh, just make sure your franchisees can make money. Right. I, it just makes so much sense. It's just, uh, and it, it it's amazing to me that in this day and age we still don't see that focus on, in every franchise brand. Right, and and you and I have both talked to some investors over a period of time that that get that, uh, mm-hmm. you know, on the Wall Street side, in the in the hedge fund world, uh, in the private equity world, but but more and more people are beginning to to get it. I mean, yes, you can you can franchise the heck out of a particular brand, but but it, you know, if the if the underlying fundamentals, just like the the foundation of a house are bad, eventually the house is going to collapse, you know. Right. Eventually, you know. I mean, yeah. maybe, not, maybe not right away, but, um, you know. So, you know, it, it's it's just essential to have that, that, that kind of uh, background. I mean, one one thing I would note is one of the better practices that I've seen is, 
in a franchise brand to separate out the franchise development function from that of the you know the sales guys actually so mm-hmm. the sales folks that actually go go out and actually bring in brands and then have the operation support you know the so-called franchise operation support have them two separate direct reports into the CEO mm-hmm. I, think if, I think if you smerge them together then always one interest you know the development interest usually winds up on top and you re- you really need to have visibility to it you know mm-hmm. even if you have a brand that you don't have many company stores, you know. I mean, you can still make this work, you know. I mean, um, you know, maybe two or three company stores is not enough. But if you have a couple of markets, if you have, you know, uh, I'm, 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 I'm trying to think of um, uh, Firehouse uh, mm-hmm. Subs, for example. Uh, Don Fox, the C, I think I think he has about 40 or 50 company stores. And right. that's enough. You know, that's probably yeah. enough that you can determine – what do I need to do, and also to to build some people out of that structure that maybe have gotten their time in terms of working with a company, and now they want to go out and become a franchisee or a director of operations for a franchisee. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think that we've seen some examples where you don't actually really need to own any company stores, and you could still have um, some some good franchise relations. You can you know you can make sure that they're making money and. Um, you know, you can you can listen to what they say. So it's not necessarily, um, you know, I mean, it, it definitely can work. Um, you just have to, you know, just fundamentally, if your franchisees can make money, I mean, that just takes care of all sorts of problems. Yep, and, and exactly. And if you separate out the – if you don't have company stores for whatever reason, if you separate out your franchise operations and mm-hmm. your development into two separate corporate officers, right. that will at least give that – Franchise operations and concept product development a a separate uh, elevation, if you will, in, in corporate decision making, and that that that's fundamental, I think. All right. Well, this was a fantastic discussion, sir. I really appreciate you joining us on the podcast this week. It was fun. It is always fun to talk about restaurants, isn't it? Yes, it is. Now to delve into the dispute between Tim Hortons and id franchisees. In 2014, Burger King bought Tim Hortons, creating Restaurant Brands International. The company laid off corporate staff, creating tension with operators who complain about inspections, pricing, and the lack of assistance. Operators created a franchisee association and have filed multiple lawsuits against the company. The franchisor has seized restaurants that some of the franchisee's leaders owned, situations that have since been settled. The dispute has generated considerable press-up in Canada and is seen as a factor in the chain's relatively weak sales north of the border, including a 0.3% same-store sales growth in the second quarter. Chad Finkelstein is not involved in either side of the dispute, but he has been an acute observer of the situation and what it means for franchising in Canada. In this interview, he explains why Canadians are so concerned about the issue. Finkelstein is a partner and registered trademark agent in Dale and Lesserman's corporate commercial group in Toronto. He is also a frequent writer and speaker. Here's Chad. Chad, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So I, I find this uh, what's going on up in Canada with Tim Hortons pretty fascinating. You have uh, the franchisor uh, and the franchisee sort of at odds on on a number of issues. Um, and what, what's really interesting is sort of how consumers have reacted up there. Um, is that it's that it seems that Canadian consumers have are, are are have been a little affected by it. Do you think that's right or? Yeah, I do. Uh, you know, there's it, it, it's something that's pretty unique um, to have a, a brand that is so associated with a country's um, entire identity. And the word that gets often used, the word that gets used the most often with Tim Hortons is that it's iconic, uh, and it really is. It is something that is um, uh, absolutely intertwined in Canadian culture. And so, when things are affected at a store level, um, it really does resonate across communities because that's really what Tim Hortons has um, has always been. For Canadians mm-hmm. um, is a is a community brand. I mean, it uh, you know people know their local store operators. There's there's one in big cities, little towns. It doesn't really matter. It's where people go to um, you know to to congregate, and there actually is a real community feel with it. And that community feel is a is has always been a big part of the branding and, and marketing. So um, Canadians uh, Canadians really really um, feel something unique about the uh, Tim Hortons brand, and I think have been very. Um, uniquely impacted by some of the uh, the news that you've seen about some of the uh, disputes at the head office level with uh, with franchisees. 
If, now, does this sort of get – if you go back a couple of years and uh, Burger King, you know, backed by 3G Capital, uh, buys Tim Hortons, and there was an awful lot of concern about Tim Hortons remaining a fundamentally Canadian brand. And, hmm. and so Burger King made a ton of concessions, some very unusual concessions, I thought. Um, to try to uh, address those concerns, moving to Canada, for instance, from Miami. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, they, they made, you know, various commitments, uh, you know, to grow the brand in the United States. I mean, all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and to maintain the royalty of the uh, Canadian yeah. franchisees, yeah. Is that, that, that was, I mean, is that sort of, I mean, is, is that sort of just kind of, is there concern there that, what what we're seeing now, at least with the dispute, is that it, the brand is losing some of its Canadian identity. Uh, I think that that's um, uh, very much what is on the minds of Canadians. Uh, I, I, I can't speak obviously for all Canadians, and I should also mention that you know uh, our our law firm uh, doesn't represent uh, Tim Hortons or or RBI or any of the Tim's uh, franchisees. So um, these are things that I you know mm-hmm. that I uh, that, that I've heard or picked up on just from you know being a legal advisor to the industry. Um, but yeah, I, I do think that the change in uh, ownership um, has led to changes in corporate culture, which has permeated down to changes in um, relationships with franchisees, which which I think that some Canadian customers uh, are really feeling. I mean, Tim's, um, you know, it's uh, it's not the kind of organization where its leadership had traditionally been people who've got you know business degrees at um, at Ivy League schools. Uh, I don't say that disparagingly, um, but it's people who have known and understood what it's like to go out and meet um, the operators, speak their language in in you know rural communities. Canada is a huge, huge country. It's a huge landmass, um, but it has a very small population. Uh, we've got fewer people in the state of California, and most of those people are clustered into a very small number of um, uh, densely populated um, uh, metropolitan areas. So, um, you know, when you've got Tim's in these small towns, small outposts all over the country, uh, it really does require a unique understanding of kind of the local relationship with those operators and the relationship that those operators have with their um, with their customers. And so, when the corporate culture starts to change. And starts to introduce things like, you know, like 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 um, more, I guess, um, efficiencies at a corporate mm-hmm. level, more you know, changes in supplier agreements, more um, more changes in the way you know what's expected of franchisees, the way the franchisees are communicated with. That permeates all the way down. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, my understanding is that, for example, Tim's had always been really, really supportive of franchisees and provided all of the uh, real estate support. Um, I think that some of that has eroded a little bit, and franchisees are being asked and expected to do more of that site selection and lease negotiation themselves. Again, these are just things that, I, that I've you know, kind of picked up from the community, so I, I've got, I, don't, I don't say it on any authority. Um, but just something like that, when that's the way you're accustomed to doing business with head office, and now head office is, you know, making, is, is now offloading more of the typical responsibilities to franchisees they were used to having support from head office with, yeah, that, that, that changes the relationship. Mm-hmm. And that's that's kind of a, that's a, I think that's kind of a big deal. Um, the uh, you, know, I, you know I always say that in a, in a franchise system culture really really matters. And um, you know what works for one system doesn't necessarily work exactly for a next the next one. And Tim Hortons is a really unusual franchise system. It's not really. You know the 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 operators um, have always been a little bit more dependent, I think, on the franchisor than say a Burger King was back in 2010 when 3G Capital took over. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know, and 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 it's in, and those sorts of changes would seem to me to be pretty tough for the operators to kind of adjust to. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, um, and again, I don't, I don't say this to be disparaging or critical uh, of Burger King, but Burger mm-hmm. King isn't Tim Hortons, right? Burger yeah. King is a different kind of brand, is a different kind of culture, it's a different look, different feel, different product, different style of marketing and advertising. Tim's has always historically prided itself uh, and become known to Canadians uh, at, at a very local, very personal, very you know community-driven level, um, and so uh, you know. 
I don't I don't mean to say that you know it never mm-hmm. had operational efficiencies or it streamlined any kind of you know systemized um, method of operations that was always very much there. Uh, and you know there certainly is a history of of you know kind of friction between franchisees and uh, and, and the franchisor. Um, but it it is a different culture in a different mm-hmm. country when you're headquartered here. Uh, and, and I'm not sure that the the leadership um, at RBI. Um, necessarily appreciated, they may have known it when they acquired the company, necessarily appreciated um, what that means um, to to maintain that kind of consistent um, community style of communication um, and the impact that that was going to have all the way down to the customer who, I mean, customers of Tim Hortons, I mean, as I, as I mentioned, I mean, they, they, they know their local operators, they know the store managers in a way that you don't with Burger King. And so when you see that the operations are affected, customers um, react very strongly. And um, one of the one of the most I think pronounced examples of that for me at least um, was that in the province of Ontario uh, earlier this year the province um, increased the um, minimum wage and mm-hmm. one of the Tim Hortons uh, franchises now it happened to have been owned that franchise by the children of the founders of Tim Hortons so people who um, you know presumably had, uh, uh, had had some means behind them. Um, and I, that's, that's relevant for. I'll explain in a second. Uh, those those, those operators, uh, in response to the hike in minimum wage, they uh, removed certain employee benefits, and this became a real you know, national PR story uh, from a few yeah. perspectives. One was about you know the, the minimum wage issue. The other was about how could how could you know the the, the children who you know likely come from means of the founders of Tim Hortons how could they have taken this step? Um, but the response to it was that some Canadians started to protest Tim Hortons stores. Uh, which is astounding to me. Uh, you know, put aside the kind of the counterintuitiveness of it, of, you know, protesting the people whose jobs you're kind of trying to, to help out. But I'm not sure that there's anything that's quite analogous to that um, anywhere outside of Canada where people across the country could, you know, see that the brand that they, that they love is, um, is being impacted and then at a community level go and protest to make sure that there's no added pressure to take more away from employees. Um, I, I thought it was just a, 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 a just a, a whether it was misguided or not, it was a real demonstration of how intrinsic that brand is in Canadian culture. Yeah, I, I think it's um, I think it's really sort of telling of the difference between um, uh, you know the United States and in Canada, where you get protests over something like that. And I, I mean, people would complain. I don't think you'd you'd end up with protests outside of a restaurant over over something like that. Yeah, yeah, because it, it just kind of means that much to people here. And Tim's has always been great at, you know, sponsoring community programs and community initiatives. I mean, there there is a local feel, and I think that local feel has been um, has been somewhat lost. And um, my my guess would be, and this is completely my own personal mm-hmm. speculation, as somebody who you know is, is a part of the industry and can stand back and take a look at what's going on. So I say this without any authority or any kind of nobody's having you know told me anything. Um, is that my guess is that that Change in co- in corporate culture and therefore in the kind of the brand's relationship with the community will likely continue in that direction uh, that we've mm-hmm. seen take over. Um, my guess would be, I mean, you've got with Burger King, for example, or with you know Popeyes, which RBI uh, also owns. I mean, you mm-hmm. have in the United States groups of, of you know multi multi unit franchisees. I mean, hundreds of of, of franchise stores that they um, that uh, that they own and operate. Um, you've got tons of private equity uh, investment and tons of financing options for these very sophisticated groups of multi-unit franchisees. We have nothing nearly as sophisticated like that in Canada, and there's probably a variety of reasons why that's the case. But I mean, I think Tim's probably has, I think probably their, their largest franchisee may have, you know, 40, 40 to 50 stores, maybe something like that. But we don't have, we don't have um, anything uh, similar to that. And so my guess is that uh, you're going to see. RBI try to follow the same model in Canada with Tim's as has happened in the States with Burger King and, and Popeyes and try to consolidate more of those franchisees, more of those individual stores into a small number of larger groups. And, and when that happens, and there may be very good business reasons why that happens, but when that does happen, uh, I think that you still see, again, kind of permeating down to the, the store level, the operations and the relationship with the customer do change. Yeah. I, I think that would be a real risk, especially um, to me. I, I, I mean, McDonald's is doing that in the United States. Clearly, it's it's. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of rumblings about the brand kind of going towards more 
larger scale franchisees. Um, but, you know, I, I think that, you know, probably the United States brand to me, that is the closest to Tim Hortons um, in terms of everything would be Chick-fil-A, right? So it has, uh, I mean, it's not really, Chick-fil-A is a very different model, but mm-hmm. you have small franchisees, you have, and you have that benefit for mm-hmm. having these people who are there close to their stores, close to their communities, and, you know, they really are in touch with, with their customer base, really in a way that some of these giant um, operators just aren't uh, to the same extent. I mean, I have nothing against large-scale franchisees, many of them are really good, mm-hmm. but... But it's just a very, very different model of franchising, and I think that would be a risk to me uh, um, of, of, you know, of uh, RBI kind of going in that particular direction. Yeah, yeah, and uh, it makes me wonder, and again, this is me just, you know, expressing my own totally personal views and speculation. It makes me wonder whether, and, you know, some of your, your listeners may or, not be awa- may or may not be aware of the, the you know, the, the, the actual disputes that have taken place between the Franchisee Association mm-hmm. here in Canada and, uh, and, and, and RBI. Um, but in the course of those disputes, you know, Tim's has, Tim Hortons or RBI has um, not renewed the franchise agreements for uh, two of the leaders of the Franchisee Association. And that generated, I mean, national um, media interest and, and headlines here. Um, and I think, uh, I think one, I believe by now both of them, uh, I think RBI has, has settled with both of them. But it yeah. makes me wonder I mean, whether that was a good idea from a PR perspective or not is another story, but it makes me wonder whether the actual act of doing it was sort of, um, intent as part of a, a larger strategy of, of starting to, you know, not renew the, uh, you know, the smaller franchisees. And therefore by doing it with two of the higher profile franchisees, does that then potentially spur along other franchisees from not wanting to renew, being more likely to sell, so that way that kind of consolidation into larger multi-unit franchisees can continue. And I, um, or sorry, can, can, can start. And, you know, as you just mentioned, uh, yeah, I have nothing against multi-unit franchisees. Uh, it's not intended to be a knock on them. Um, but I think there is, there is likely to be a difference that's, that's felt between the relationship between customer and franchisee when it's not, you know, when it's not someone who's in your community who you know very well, for example. Right, right. And, and, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, and the thing is, is it's like Tim Hortons is just such, has been so successful up in Canada, the way it's, it's gone. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I, I don't know, I just, I'm not entirely sure why you'd want to really mess with a formula that really works and, you know, just do it differently somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And so, you know, the thing that I, the, probably the, 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 the news development that I found the most interesting here, um, because obviously as a, as a lawyer, I mean, I follow as closely as I can um, what is happening in the dispute between franchisor and franchisees, you know, the nature of the dispute, what the, what the nature of the claims are, what the, you know, resolution might be, who's alleging what against whom, and, you know, trying to assess what the strength of each claim. But probably the, the development that I found the most interesting is that um, there was a, there's an annual um, uh, national brand survey. Uh, mm-hmm. a brand reputation survey every year in Canada and uh, in this past year um, Tim Hortons fell out of I think out of the, the, the top 10 uh, to number 50 for the first time in like I don't know I don't know how many years but the first time in a very very long time and um, you know that's something that is reasonably quantifiable that you can see that there you know that there, there actually has been an impact on uh, you know putting all this all this you know sales numbers aside there actually has been an impact perceived by Canadian consumers and that's you know when when we don't have a lot of national brands have the same scope as a you know you mentioned McDonald's or Chick-fil-A um, when that happens to, to Tim Hortons I mean you know Canadians take notice and Canadians are tracking what is happening to Tim Hortons very very carefully because I mean nobody um, nobody, nobody wants to see anything bad happen at Tim Hortons. It means so much to so many people here. Mm-hmm. But this wasn't the first time, though. I think the interesting thing: this isn't the first time they've even been owned by a United States company. Yeah, that's correct. That's correct. <laughs> and, yeah, that's right. There was uh, there was previously a relationship with uh, with Wendy's. Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh, it did quite well under Wendy's, actually. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, in fact, it was uh, the joke. At the time, uh, I think it was 2006, when um, Wendy's divested its ownership, I IPO'd um, uh, uh, Tim Hortons. The joke was, 
well, maybe, um, you know, maybe it should have been the other way around. Maybe Tim Horton's man mm-hmm. should be run, running Wendy's. Yeah, sure. Wendy's was really struggling at the time. So sure. they did pretty well under that in, in, in that particular era. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. So it's, uh, you know, that just goes to, to show you it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not, it's not a uniquely Canadian versus American corporate culture thing. Um, mm-hmm. It's just, uh, just a matter of being, I suppose, uh, aware and, uh, and cognizant of the, um, uh, I guess that what what a brand means at a local level to people, um, right, right. and it's uh, it, it's so much different than walking into a food court and grabbing a coffee at a Tim Hortons. I mean, there there are those locations, obviously, but to most Canadians, um, it it features so much more prominently in their lives. In fact, this is, this is a bit of an aside, but I um, I recently went and saw the uh, uh, the musical um, Come From Away. Uh, mm-hmm. Which is uh, now I think on on Broadway, and so it uh, I think it started here in Toronto, and um, it's a it's a great production, but you know it all takes place in a very small town in the very small province of Newfoundland, and um, so much of the activity uh, takes place in the local Tim Hortons, so it's a, it's a part of the, of the story itself that so much of the community congregates at the, at that Tim Hortons, so yeah, it, it it features really really prominently in um, in a lot of Canadians' lives. Yeah. Um, so is your recommendation to like for franchisors and and and, uh, and brand uh, brand operators that you know kind of be careful uh, on on these these the franchisee relations because I mean it, when when it um, you know when it gets really bad I mean it can kind of come to bite you a little bit. I think so. I mean, I think that's been a big takeaway. I mean, we uh, we uh, assisted um, with the change in ownership of a of a large chain. Um, last year, and I know that uh, you know very much on the mind of the parties involved was um, uh, you know let's be very careful in the way that this is all handled and communicated because we don't want to miscommunicate, miscommunicate anything and have kind of another Tim Hortons on our hands. So there's I think that uh, to the extent that that you know that brands. Uh, or the ownership of those brands were not already attunedly aware and sensitive of how to communicate and maintain franchise relations in the course of a of a, of a change in ownership. That's probably the biggest takeaway is um, uh, the the timing of those changes, the content of them, as well as the method, the way in which um, system changes start to get rolled out, whether it's changes mm-hmm. in suppliers, whether it's changes in operating standards, whether it's you know changes in prices. Um, there's only so much change that one local franchise operator can take at one time. Uh, mm-hmm. And also there's a method of communicating those. And when you, know, when you hear franchisee after franchisee alleging the head office support, it, they used to be able to pick up the phone and there was someone who answered. I, I have no way of knowing this is true. You just, hear these, you just hear these statements from franchisees saying it used to be this way. I used to have a contact person I could call and mm-hmm. ask a question or express a concern. When, you know, when, when the culture is one way and it gets changed to another way, um, you know, I, I think that anybody who's acquiring an ownership interest or, you know, or control uh, of, a, of a brand needs to always be mindful of, of maintaining, um, uh, I guess, the, the, maintaining the consistency for as much as possible because that's what the franchise's expectations are going to be. Change is, is you know, is, is uh, people are afraid by afraid of change often and with good reason often. Uh, and I think that this may be kind of a, a case study in um, kind of the, the maybe a slower rollout of, of system-wide change and the communication of those, rather than um, simply saying, uh, you know, there's 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 a new sheriff in town and this, right. this stuff, things are going to be different. Right, right. Now, for all of these concerns, though, um, uh, as, as many concerns as there are up in Canada, and, and as many complaints as there are. There's still pretty heavy demand to get in the in the system, is there not? I mean, it's not like they they, they would be hurting for franchisees. Yeah, I, I I doubt very much they're hurting for franchisees. So you're exactly mm-hmm. right. I mean, despite all of the relatively negative publicity that uh, that we've seen Tim Hortons deal with, um, Tim Hortons is uh, and this this may be a figure that may be surprising to um, to a lot of people, but I, I my understanding has always been that the wait list to acquire Tim Hortons franchise has been. Anywhere between like five and ten years, I think. I think it's been wow. it's been a years long wait list at its peak to be able to get a Tim's franchise. Um, so uh, while there are certainly changes that have occurred at the head office level, there's changes that have occurred at the you know franchise level. There's changes, lots of changes at the kind of the supplier level, operations level, um, and all of the negative publicity that has dogged RBI since uh, since the acquisition, um, I think the Canadians, at the end of the day, 
still recognize that Tim's is a is a pretty good business. I mean, people are right. going to keep uh, people are going to keep getting their coffee from Tim Hortons. People are still going to you know continue to congregate at those stores, and therefore it will always be a good business offer. It'll always still be, still be a profitable business opportunity, notwithstanding some of the misgivings some you know Canadian consumers who are reading the news may have. Uh, so yeah, I, I I don't think that they are. Um, uh, you know, uh, like running out of uh, franchise prospects to choose from. My guess is that the that the the wait list is um, is probably just as long as it's always been uh, to acquire one. Right. It wouldn't surprise me, by the way. Um, you know, if uh, if it's part of uh, any more kind of community or local engagement, Tim Hortons did start showing up at um, at more kind of franchise shows and expos to sell franchises. Um, again, mm-hmm. my own you know speculation. Uh, my guess is though that would be more for. Um, for engaging with the community than it would be to actually, you know, uh, right. be selling franchises for open territories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, it's a pretty safe uh, investment, um, uh, Tim Hortons in Canada, even even with their current issues. It's yes. still yes, really, right. really the top franchise to buy up there. Um, yes. Chad, thank you very much for joining on the joining us on the podcast this week. Thank you for having me. On last week's podcast, I answered some questions that people sent in to me via Twitter. I didn't get to all of the questions, and I probably won't get to all of them this week, but I did want to get to one from Tom Lipinski, who asked, lots of mergers and acquisitions in the restaurant business. Who has the best and worst value per unit based on acquisition cost? So fundamentally, uh, this is a very good question. Uh, fundamentally, it's very difficult to compare prices between restaurant chains based purely on the number of locations because there are so many factors that go into valuation, stability, growth potential, real estate holdings, and uh, whether they franchise or operate locations. Uh, so you get a lot of companies that will franchise all their locations and a lot of companies that will run all of their locations. And then you got a lot of businesses in between. And they are all very, very um, different businesses, uh, you know, depending on – and different valuations, depending on the number of companies, uh, restaurants they own. So um, a restaurant that franchises all of its units – will fundamentally make uh, less money because they are only generating revenue on the royalties paid by franchisees rather than all of the sales at the restaurant. So a restaurant that makes $2 million uh, in revenue a year, an operator will be able to profit off all $2 million. A franchisee will only be able to profit off the 5 to 10% that they charge in royalties and ad funds and, and, and that sort of thing. Um, however, franchisees, and this is why Wall Street likes them so much, franchisees uh, are much higher uh, profit margin businesses because they don't have the capital costs, they don't have the labor costs and some other – the food costs and other factors that can uh, reduce profit margins. And so the multiples of uh, – the, the purchase multiples that franchisors get from uh, buyers is can be much higher. So – for instance, uh, Popeye's got $1.8 billion for what is a 2,600-unit chain. Uh, that was about $700,000 per location, uh, while Panera Bread got $7.5 billion for 2,000 locations last year, or $3.7 million per unit. But Panera operates 900 of its locations, and so it generates a lot more revenue and total earnings. But uh, the purchase uh, valuation as a multiple of those earnings um, gave uh, Popeye's one of the highest uh, uh, purchase price multiples that the industry has ever seen at about 20 plus uh, times EBITDA versus 18 for Panera Bread. Uh, both of those are very, very high prices and, and sort of helped reestablish the market. However, to answer your question, we can probably look at apples to apples comparisons. So let's take a look at Popeye's versus Sonic, both of which are largely franchised fast food businesses. Um, Popeye's got $1.8 billion for its two 2,600 locations, seven, uh, nearly 700000 per unit. Uh, Sonic, $2.3 billion for 3,600 locations or 600000 per unit. Um, so obvi- so you know, Popeye's got a, a higher multiple than the 15 to 16 that Sonic is getting from uh, Arby's owner Inspire brand, um, even though uh, Popeye's uh, purchase price was, was overall less. So um, you know, so Popeyes has got the higher valuation there per unit. Uh, you can also compare Panera Bread with Buffalo Wild Wings, both of which uh, roughly, you know, half uh, franchised uh, businesses. Panera got the 7.5 billion, 2,000 locations, or 3.7 million per unit. 
Uh, Buffalo Wild Wings, uh, by comparison, got $2.9 billion for 1,500 locations, or about $1.9 million per unit. Um, that shows that you know Panera Bread is a fast casual chain. It was performing uh, much better than uh, at the time of sale than than Buffalo Wild Wings was, and Buffalo Wild Wings as a casual diner, uh, which just just doesn't uh, generate the the interest from buyers uh, that a fast casual would. Um, and so you definitely have a, a stronger valuation. And then uh, to to point out um, a couple of other more recent examples, uh, Pret a Manger was was uh, sold. Uh, to JAB Holdings um, for $2 billion. It has uh, 500 plus locations or about $3.8 million per unit. So definitely got a pretty, pretty strong valuation on that one. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, that is considered a, a growth concept, uh, has some worldwide potential and a buyer in JAB Holdings that has definitely thrown the traditional uh, earnings multiples kind of out the window. Uh, and then you have uh, Barcelona Bar Taco, which was sold this year to uh, Del Frisco's. They were sold for $325 million. They had just 31 locations or $10.5 million per unit. Um, definitely Del Frisco's buying growth there. So you see what happens when you get a buyer uh, that really wants uh, some growth and uh, is willing to pay for it. And that's sort of where the market is at at the moment. That is all the time we have for questions this week. This week's A Deeper Dive was edited by Kimberly Colley. Artwork by Nico Hines and Sarah Stewart. Contributors to this podcast include Sarah Rushworth, Peter Romeo, Heather Lally, and Pat Kobe. Executive producer is Sarah Lockyer. You can find this and other episodes of this podcast on our website at www.restaurantbusinessonline.com backslash article backslash podcast. You can also find us on iTunes, Google Play, and TuneIn Radio. I'm Jonathan Mays, your host and podcast producer. Thank you for listening.